0: Well, for those of you who may have missed last week um, or missed where we're at in the sermon series right now, we are in week two of a six-week series on the book of Ephesians. We are encouraging the congregation to do something that we are calling Six for Six. And what we are challenging you to do is to read the book of Ephesians once a week. It's six chapters once a week for the next six weeks as we travel through this book. I promise you that whether you have been reading scripture for a long time or you are new to scripture and you're not quite sure where to start, you won't be sorry. Uh, I have been reading over this book for the last couple weeks in preparation for this and I plan to continue to do so as we preach throughout this series. And I know it just enhances my worship and it's just rich theologically good stuff to read. So I would encourage you to do that um, and hopefully we can do that as a congregation over these next couple of weeks. Well, last week, my colleague, Tracy Bianchi, did a wonderful job of giving us an overview of the book of Ephesians. She reminded us, and I'm just going to remind us today to kind of get our brains caught up, but she reminded us that Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Now Paul had actually spent three years with the church in Ephesus. He was teaching them, he was leading them, he was building them up. And so he wrote this letter to a group of people that were fairly mature in their faith and that he knew well. Paul uh, wrote this letter in 60 A.D., about 30 uh, years after the resurrection of Christ. And at the time he wrote the letter, he actually left Ephesus, and now he was imprisoned in Rome. And so he was writing this letter back to the church in Ephesians. And uh, this is commonly known as one of the four uh, prison epistles for this reason, the other three being Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Now while some of Paul's other letters like 1st and 2nd Corinthians for example were written to specific churches to address a very specific problem, this church or this letter was a circular letter that would go to a variety of churches and it was written to remind them of who God was, who they were in Christ, and how now they were to live out their faith. Tracy also reminded us that Ephesians was a massive urban center in the Roman Empire. It was actually the capital of the Roman Empire and so there was a lot going on there, not unlike the city of Chicago where you have lots of people coming in and out. There's lots of business going on, there's lots of culture, there's a lot of things happening. And that in Ephesus uh, there was actually also a temple to the goddess Artemis and that was a focal point in the city and so many people and many people who came from other places would worship the god Artemis. So one thing I'd like to add on to the context of this letter is the fact that Paul was writing to a largely Gentile audience. Now, Gentiles, for those of you who may not be familiar, in a very broad context, means anybody who's not Jewish. So if we step back and we look at the narrative of our faith, right, and we look at even the opening of the New Testament, we're reminded that the New Testament begins with the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, who are under Roman oppression, and they are longing for a deliverer to come and set them free. They have the echoes of the stories of the prophets and of their forefathers and of their ancestors saying that one day this deliverer will come. And so Jesus comes, and he doesn't look exactly like they think he's going to look, and he doesn't do exactly what they think he is going to do, but he does come, and he sets them free, and he comes to restore Israel to their rightful position as God's chosen people. He came first for the Jewish nation. Now we know because of hindsight that Jesus never intended for his message, for the gospel, to stay just within the Jewish nation. And so as he is leaving the earth, we hear him in the Great Commission say to his disciples, Go, go and spread this message, go and make disciples of all nations from here, Judea to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we know that that's exactly what the disciples did, and their disciples did that same thing, which is why now the gospel is in Ephesus. So why is this particularly important to our conversations about Ephesians this morning? Well, it's important, one, because anytime we read scripture, it's important for us to know who our audience is and who Paul was writing to. It's also important for us to know, not just this morning, but as we continue to walk through the book of Ephesians and other people come up here and continue to preach through it, it's important for us to remember that that divide between Jew and Gentile no longer exists. Because the death, resurrection, and under the authority of Jesus Christ, that the people are now one. And Paul wants to make this abundantly clear. So as we begin Ephesians chapter two, it's important to know that this is largely a book of contrasts. So if you would humor me for just a moment, I know it's a holiday weekend and we are here, maybe some of us are still waking up, so let's get our brains going a little bit. Humor me for a minute with some just common contrasts. So for example, if I said dark, you might say, Light. it's okay, you can say it, it's okay. We know. If I say south, you might say north, good. If I said cold, you might say poor, you would say cubs, you would say, all right, all right, there we go, we got it. I'm a Pittsburgh girl, so I don't say either of those things, but um, all right, we got it, so you're with me. Now, I'd like you to just indulge me a little bit further, and if you would, and if you're comfortable, just sit back and actually um, close your eyes and I want you to imagine something with me. Imagine the darkest dark that you've ever experienced. Imagine you're in the depths of a cave, and that cave just got a little smaller, and even a little smaller, and the rocks started closing in around you with the earth pressing close on all sides. It's damp, It's cold, there's no opening, there are no cracks in which light is shining through, there's no way out. In fact, if you held a hand in front of your face and strained to see it, you couldn't, for there is only darkness. And now imagine those rocks begin to separate just a little bit They're not closing quite as tightly in on you. They're spreading out. There becomes a small opening in which some light starts to shine through. And you begin to slowly start crawling out of that place until eventually it gets a little warmer and a little warmer and a little warmer until you find yourself in the midst of a field. You are standing fully upright and warmth and sunshine is basking on you. And then something comes along very gently and maybe lifts you by the arms or the waist, and it carries you higher and higher and higher until the only thing you feel is the openness of the space of the horizon that is around you, and the only thing you see is the brightness of the sun. You can open your eyes. This is the contrast that Paul so desperately wants his readers to understand in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. And so he begins the chapter pretty dramatically, pretty emphatically. He uses these words that just kind of slam right into the reader, and he says this. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, the you in this verse is specifically talking to those Gentile believers. He's saying you who were not originally chosen as part of God's family, you who he will later call foreigners and strangers, you who were outside of God's chosen people, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, dead here is figurative, right? Right? Dead is, in the spiritual sense, it's meaning that uh, we are separated, alienated from God. The the believers here, apart from Christ, are under the dominion of death. And so while some of them may have been walking around fully alive and experiencing all that Ephesus had to to offer, they were like the walking dead. Dead. And he goes on to add some descriptors on what this actually means. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So he's saying first, you followed the ways of this world the culture around you. It's not like, like, unlike us today, we have so many different messages being spit at us from the culture, whether it's through TV, or movies, or music, or social media, or, or other people in our life, we have so many things that are being spit at us. And Paul is saying, you know what, you used to live in the ways you followed the world and the culture. But he's also adding on, it's not just the tangible things in our culture that you used to live under, but it's also Satan and it's the lies that he spins. So it's this intangible, right? We all know there's also this intangible place of evil in our culture that wants to tear us down. And so Paul is saying, you Gentiles, this is who you were. But then he goes on pretty quickly to add in verse 3, he says, Not just you, but all of us also lived among them at one time. Meaning all of us Jews, all of us chosen people. Paul includes himself in that. Paul, who used to be Saul, who unmercifully persecuted Christians. He's saying all of us. In other words, it doesn't matter where you've come from or what you've done or what your story is or who your family is. He says, all of you and all of us were at one time dead in our transgressions and sins. What I love about what Paul is doing here is that he's leveling the playing field. You know, it's very easy for us, myself included, to kind of plot ourselves on a scale in our spiritual life using terms of good and bad. We look at our moral successes and we look at our moral failures and we kind of look at this thing and we say, okay, where am I going to plot myself based on those things? And we don't just do that for ourselves, but we compare our own lives to others and we look at to the left and to the right of us and we say, okay, I might plot myself here, because." I'm actually, the things that I have done are a little better than this person here. Or maybe we look and say, oh, okay, you know what, actually, they're a little better than me, and so I'm going to plot myself down here in terms of our behavior. But fortunate for us, the kingdom of God has never been, is not now, or nor will ever be based on our behavior it doesn't matter how good or bad that behavior is. The kingdom of God is not about our morality, but it's about God's grace alone. Paul says, stop play- just stop playing that game. It says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of God's wrath. Now, it might be at this point in my sermon that you're saying, gosh, Sue why, why so depressing, right? It's a holiday weekend. The sun is finally shining. We have a barbecue to go to. We're having friends over. Why so depressing? Well, when I was a kid, I used to love to read. And um, I had a love-hate relationship with a book called The Incredible Journey. Now, maybe some of you may be more familiar with that. It was remade uh, by Disney in the 90s uh, to a movie called Homeward Bound The Incredible Journey. And it was the story of two dogs and a cat. And they lived with a family who was going away on some business and took their two dogs and a cat to a farm to stay for a little bit while they traveled. Only the animals didn't know that the owners were eventually going to come back to get them. The animals thought they were left. And so the animals started to kind of panic a little bit, and they decided to set out on this journey to find their masters. Now, it was called The Incredible Journey, but I, as a kid reading it, I thought it should have been called like the awful, most horrible, horrendous, don't let your kid read this book um, kind of journey. Because I started to read this journey, and the things that the animals that were experiencing were so horrific, I couldn't finish the book. And I would end up just crying and crying and crying and I would start the book over and I would try to read it again and I would cry and I would cry. And I remember I I grew up on a farm and so uh, this was real to me and so I remember sitting in my bed sometimes even being so distraught that I would get out of bed and I would go outside and I would sit on the concrete of our front porch with my two dogs and I would just rub them and say, I love you, it's okay, it's okay. Well, finally, my mom, seeing my distress, in her wisdom and in her loving words, she finally said, Suanne, you know, maybe if you actually finish the story, maybe you'll realize it has a happy ending. Maybe if you keep reading, you'll realize that the owners actually, or the animals actually get home. See, if we don't continue the story of where we're at with Paul's letter right now, if we are just left dead in our transgressions and our sins, if we don't finish the story, we don't know that God made a way for us to get home. And this is exactly Paul's point. In order for the recipients of this letter to understand the meaning and significance of their new spiritual life, what it means to be fully alive, He has to make sure they understand what it felt like to be in the depths of the darkness of the cave without the light and life of Jesus Christ. As commentator Peter O'Brien says, existence prior to receiving eternal life is not a state of neutrality. Such an assumption would be to ignore Paul's vivid, devastating description of the spiritually dead. There is no greater contrast in human experience than between death and life. Paul wants to make sure that his readers understand the contrast. And here it comes. In the ve- next verse, verse 4, nine of my favorite words in all of scripture says this. But because of his great love for us, God. It's a good scripture to sit with, isn't it? I could probably just stop talking right here and say amen Because for those of us that have finished the story, for those of us that know the rest of the story, know that everything hinges on this verse. Paul goes on to say, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Did you catch that piece? I'm going to pause for just a moment. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God didn't wait for us to get our act together. He doesn't wait for us to tidy up our lives. He didn't wait for us to climb up that scale and plot ourselves as high as he could. In his goodness and his kindness, God made a pathway for us to come home while we were still following the ways of the world and gratifying the cravings of our flesh. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture is Romans 5.8. While we were yet still sinners Christ died for us. He goes on quickly to say it is by grace you have been saved and we're actually going to come back to that one. But in verse 6, he says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You see, he didn't just let us crawl out of the cave. He didn't just let us get scraped up and muddy and then lay on our back in a field and let a little bit of the breeze warm us up. He raised us all the way up, all the way high, to sit with him in the heavenly realms. And why? Look at verse 7 in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, part of God's plan for humanity and for us is that people would look at our transformed lives, that they would look at us going from dead to alive, they would look at the dark to the light, that they would look at us seeing us offering all that we have and all that we are for the good of his kingdom and they would say wow whatever god did that whoever did that he's not some cold statue in the middle of an urban city but he's a god that's living and he's a god that's kind and he's a god that's merciful and he's incomprehensibly gracious For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, not because of anything that we have done or can claim, so that no one can boast. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul reminds people that this is who they are in Christ. He says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he has lavished on us. N.T. Wright says, Whenever anyone says or implies that God is, after all, a bit stingy or mean or small-minded, look at these verses and think again. Because, you see, Paul didn't want to stress the deadness of our humanity, but the sheer, almost unbelievable, magnificent kindness and mercy of a holy God. Paul wants to make it very clear that Christianity is like no other religion on earth, either then or now, that there is nothing we can do to earn God's love, that salvation is through faith alone. It is the gift from God. And he goes on to say, For we are God's handiwork, some versions say masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, but rather the good things that we do are an outpouring of a life of gratitude for what God has already done for each one of us. This summer in July, um, Eric and my two children are going on a bike trip. We are actually biking from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from, to Washington, D.C. It's a 350-mile bike trip. I will tell you that three of us are pretty excited about this trip and one is not. So I will let you talk to any one of us and you can see if you can figure out who that is. (laughs) So for the last several months, we have started to assess our needs for this trip. And of course, one of the biggest needs that we have is we need good bicycles. And so I took uh, the kids and I went and we uh, went to a store in Downers Grove and took our bikes along and uh, got them to assess what kind of shape our bikes were in. Well, the kids have already outgrown their bikes and the two bikes that Eric and I had, uh, we bought 20 years ago when we were first married and they needed some work. And so it created in me that crisis that we often find maybe when we take our car in for repair, and we wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth the cost to repair the car, or should we just get a new one? And so I left the bike shop that day, and I wasn't sure what to do, and so I called my dad, who is uh, an avid bike rider. He is 75 years old, and he is taking this trip with with us, and I guarantee you that he will bike every single mile. And so I called my dad and I said, Dad, you know what, I'm not sure what to do. It wasn't really in the budget to buy new bikes. Uh, I had actually been selling that. This is a cheap vacation to my husband. And so I said, I don't know that I want to go tell him that we need new bikes. And so my dad said, you know what, let me call my guy because everyone has a guy and he goes, let me call my bike guy and I'll get back to you. And so to make a long story short, my dad called me the next morning and he said, okay, I've been doing some research, and here's the bikes I think you should get the kids." And I said, Dad, I wasn't really sure that I was going to buy the kids' new bikes. And so we went through, and over the course of the conversation several times, he mentioned that he would help cover the cost. And by the end of the conversation, I finally had to say to my dad, Dad, I need you to be very clear to me on what you mean by helping to cover the cost. And he said, Suanne, this morning, I put a check in the mail for X amount of dollars, and I want you to take my grandkids to the store and buy them new bikes. And I have learned the older I get that when someone extends that kind of generosity, there's not much you can do but to simply say thank you. And I said, thanks, Dad. The kids will be really, really excited about that. And so I was picking my 15-year-old daughter, Sadie, up from school. I actually texted her and I said, hey, when I pick you up, I have a surprise for you. And if you ever want to freak a teenager out, you text them and you tell them you have a surprise and then you don't answer your phone anymore after that. And so she texted me back a hundred different times and I just let it ride until I went to pick her up and she got in the car and she said, what are we doing? And I said, well, Paul wants you to have a new bike. We're gonna go buy new bikes. And she's like, wow, that's amazing. That's so cool. I said, so let's go get your brother from school and, and let's go do it. And so her and I decided that as we were going to pick Clay, my 14-year-old, up from school, that we wouldn't tell him what we were doing. We were going to surprise him. And so we picked him up and I said, hey bud, we're gonna go somewhere and it's a surprise. And he's like, what is it? And I said, well, we're not gonna tell you. So we're driving down Butterfield Road and of course he begins to guess. And so we pass Oberweiss and he said, are we going for ice cream? And I said, no, we're not getting ice cream. And then we passed the bowling alley and he said, are we going bowling? And I thought, why would we go bowling? No, we're not going bowling. And so we drive a little further and we pull into the plaza where the bike shop is and there's a giant um, PetSmart sign. And he said, oh, are we getting a new dog? And I went, oh, shoot, that, I, no, we're not getting a dog. And so then it felt kind of anticlimactic after that point. But uh, he saw the bike shop, and he said, wait, are we getting new bikes? And I said, yeah, bud, um, Pa wants you to buy a new bike. He wants to buy you a bike, and you can go in the store, and you can pick anything out that you want, and he's going to buy it for you. And I wish I could have captured the expression on my son's face, and I wish I could have recorded his voice because it was nothing short of pure joy and gratitude because he knew immediately that he was getting something he didn't deserve. He didn't have any of his own money. He didn't do any chores. He didn't do any volunteer work. He wasn't super nice to his sister, right? There was nothing that he could offer in this transaction to make it happen. And you know what his response was? He just kept saying, gosh, that's so nice. I can't believe how nice that is. Why would Pa do that for me? That's going to cost him a lot of money. And it was very easy for me in that moment as his parent to say, you know what, buddy, your grandfather would do that for you because he's kind and he's good and he loves you very much and there's no price he wouldn't pay to give you a good gift that brings you joy and that brings you life. Friends, I don't tell you that story to trivialize the grace and the mercy of God. I really don't. I'm not trying to be sweet or funny. I'm really not. I tell you that story because I believe That it's really easy for us to sit here in our humanity and our flesh and to look at the gift that an earthly father gives a child and to look at it as a gift of grace and to understand the joy that that brought my dad and a bike my friends right a bike is about as dead as it gets and it never has any chance of ever becoming fully alive. And so how much more joy then must it bring our good Father in heaven to give His children, all of His children, a good gift, and taking them from being spiritually dead and alienating, alienated from Him, to offering a sacrifice that brings them into his light and his life and his peace and makes them fully alive let's pray god we sit here before you this morning in awe of just what a good god you are father we thank you for the sacrifice that you have made for each one of us not because of anything that we've done but because of your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. Lord, I pray if there are those among us who have not accepted that good gift, that this may be a place where they can stop and think about that, Lord. I also pray for the people in our lives who we know that don't know this gift, Lord, and we pray for them this morning. We lift them before you that they would come to know what it's like to be fully alive. And Father, I pray... All of this, not just so that we can live eternally with you, Lord, so that we can get to heaven when we die, but so that we can live a life on this earth that is abundant and that is full and that allows us to give all of who we are to advancing your kingdom on this earth. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.